is the messages this morning uh, based on Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, we'll be calling them the Christian vocation, uh, which is our unity, seeking unity. Now, let's all stand together as we reverence the reading of God's word, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Uh, vocation is not a word we hear every day in our world, and yet it is a very good word. It is used in this passage to describe a person who has a job or a business or an occupation. And it is one for which they are particularly well-suited and trained. Generally, a vocation is something that requires a sense of giftedness. Uh, and therefore, uh, for example, vocation uh, is often used in reference to some of the skilled work, like carpenters and uh, even uh, other uh, areas of service and of work. Uh, always, though, in a sense of a skilled occupation, so much so the person who's adept at it, like a good carpenter who is very good at their job, we might say they have a calling. Uh, they were born with this ability. They're well suited for it. And in that sense, uh, the word has a reference to our calling, our vocation, a calling. It is an occupation, yes, <laughs> but it's more than a job. Uh, yeah, it's an adventure. It sure is. It is an occupation for which we have been called. Uh, now, you might notice that there's really only one letter difference between a vocation and a vacation. I, I heard a story one time about a young man uh, who watched all those recruitment ads, and he joined one of the branches of services because he thought he would get to travel and have a good time and go to all these exotic places. But he very quickly found out that what he expected to be a vacation was in fact very much a vocation. It was a real, real job, and it required a lot of training and hard work. And a lot of people maybe who've joined the military, gone into service, might have a similar testimony. Although some might have warned you about it, you really didn't know how much work it was going to be. In this passage, Paul is talking to us about the vocation of the Christian life, our calling, what we are called to. And initially, that means, of course, that we are called to salvation. And in fact, the word is used in that way many, many times uh, in the New Testament, so much so that the New Testament will often refer to us as the called, the called, as it does famously in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. So just in a general way, the fact that you're a child of God, blood-bought, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, means that you are a member of the called. But what exactly then are we called to? And there's a various, uh, various ways that the Bible speaks of that. Uh, we think of people who have a vocational calling sometimes. That is, people who are called into full-time ministry. And uh, certainly, uh, when we use the term in that way, we're using it in a very acceptable and a very biblical kind of way. Uh, we do indeed believe that God calls people into the ministry. And he gives them then an aptitude, an ability for the work that he has called them to do and a desire to do it. Uh, we understand calling then 
in that reference. But you might not have thought of yourself as a believer in Christ as being called, but you are. We have a vocation, a calling, and that job is unity. In fact, it's described for us in verse 3. We are endeavoring to keep the unity in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is not a news flash for you this morning, but we live in a very divided world in a very divided country. This is also probably not going to be news for you. Expect the division to deepen and widen. One of my prayers for our country right now is that our division doesn't turn in bloodshed. It has before. And um, in 1861 to 1865, close to a million men in this country would die as we fought one another in a terrible time of division. The nation was divided. The nation uh, could not continue in that state. Abraham Lincoln noted that. And the will of one side had to be imposed on the other. One side had to win. The other side had to lose. And that's the way it went. I do not say that in any way to say that I uh, am in favor of what happened that caused the division. That division, the thing that caused it was slavery. And I thank God that slavery no longer exists in this country. But there was a division, a terrible, horrible division that grew wider and wider and wider. We're surrounded by it. We're caught up in it. And we may think that this is purely a political division. It is not. It is not. It is a division that is caused by different beliefs. And we have foundational belief differences in this country. One side believes things should be one way. Another side believes that it should be the other way. It's not a matter of political party. But make no mistake, belief systems are in question. We live in that kind of world. And I don't say this this morning as a, as a call to any kind of action as far as political action is concerned. I, that's not why I bring it up. I bring it up for us to understand that we are living in a divided world, and that world is going to divide more and more. And we may think, well, that doesn't have anything to do to me, with me, but it does have things to do with you. Just like it has to do with me, with what we believe and, and what we stand for. And what we preach is Bible-believing Christian people. Uh, we, we are indeed involved in this. It's there. I bring it up this morning so that we'd understand that this is not anything new. I want you to think about with me for a few moments what uh, the world was when, when Paul was writing the book, at Ephesus, uh, 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 the, the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. Uh, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 19, in Acts 19, really the whole thing describes how that Paul went to the city of Ephesus. And this was during the days of the Roman Empire and the Pax Romana, that is when the Roman government of democracy had been replaced uh, by the, uh, the empire, the Roman Empire. And the will of the empire then was forced everywhere and on everyone uh, where uh, they held sway. And they certainly held sway in Ephesus. 
the city of Ephesians had a very well-entrenched uh, belief system that centered around uh, the goddess, as they called her, Diana. Uh, they believed that this uh, uh, goddess had an image that had fallen down from heaven, and they built the temple then of Diana uh, around that, and she was more or less the patron goddess of that ancient city of Ephesus. Paul went there. All the mysticism, all the religion that was entrenched in that city, all of it intertwined with the governmental authority because it wasn't just their religion, it was the religion of the Roman Empire, officially sanctioned, of which Caesar himself was a god. Paul went there and began to preach the gospel. <laughs> and I want you to see what happened. After a while, so many people got saved in the city of Ephesus that those people who had practiced magic, they brought their books together, the little scrolls that they thought held power, and they burned them in the sight of them all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That value is in the millions, the millions of today's dollars. 50,000 pieces of silver. But then notice what he said. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I love that passage. The word of God prevailed. <laughs> I want to tell you this morning that we're on the winning side. The word of God is going to prevail. It may look for a while like it's not, but the word of God prevails. It did in Ephesus. It has prevailed every year and every century intervening since. It will prevail now until Jesus comes. What God has said is going to happen is going to happen. We are just seeing it try to play out and try to figure out our peace and our place in that great puzzle that God has established for us. Of the ages in His Word. The Word of God grew and it prevailed. So the city of Ephesus just changed. Governmental structures all just went along with it. Keep reading. Verse 23, just put this verse up for a summary. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. And the way in this passage refers to the way of the gospel, the way of the New Testament, the way of Christianity. And in fact, there was a man who, if you'll read Acts 19, don't do it now, read it when you get home, but it, or maybe even on the way home, it's not that long. But there's a man who was a silversmith named Demetrius, who was head of the whole guild of silversmiths, and he called them all together because he told them, look, this guy Paul has come to town, and he is preaching this, and everybody's believing it, and we're going to lose our business. You see, everything was fine until they realized that it was going to cost them money. Never forget, folks, that the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Okay? Love of money. When it comes down to it, it's what fuels a lot of the dissension that goes on even in our world today, although sometimes it's hard to see behind all the rhetoric. But Demetrius gathered all people together, and he set the whole city in an uproar. They began to hear it, and I mean, folks just flooded into the great amphitheater and filled the place up. They were there, though they didn't even know what was going on. Somebody said, do you know why we're here? No, I thought maybe you do. Do you know? No, no, nobody knew. They were just here because, hey, there's a crowd going. Apparently a fight was breaking out. It's just like a fight on the playground. Somebody yelled, fight, and here they all go. 
They're all looking around, man, why are we here? I don't know what's happening. And finally, the guys began to stand up and talk about it. And what they were talking about it with this fellow Paul and what he was preaching. Well, Paul heard his name being called. <laughs> so being Paul, he said, man, I'll go in there and give a defense. And they wouldn't let him go. They held him back very wise. Uh, Paul would have probably died that day if he'd have gone in that arena. It was a mob. And when they told him, we're here because somebody is preaching against Diana and trying to stop her worship. For two hours, for two hours, that huge amphitheater, that huge place resounded with the shouts of a mob shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians for two solid hours. Gaius, the beloved Gaius, was one of the ones that ended up being dragged in there by the mob. Can you imagine how many people were screaming in his face and yelling at him? Well, I can tell you how this all ends. If you happen to go to the city of Ephesus today and visit there, you can visit the ruins of the Temple of Diana. It's laid in ruins for many, many, many years now. <laughs> but the truth of Jesus Christ is still doing right well. Thank you very much. And we're here in evidence of that fact today. What I want you to see is when Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4 and told them that your business, your job, your calling is going to be to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And you're going to have to work hard at this job. You're going to have to work hard at this task. It is going to be a great task for you to protect this because you are facing a very real opponent. And as Christians, you need to remember that your opponents are in the world. When we're facing a real opponent out there, we need to make sure there's unity in here. Does that make sense? Because if we're not very careful, you see, in our efforts, uh, we'll do anything but stand together. He calls us then to work really hard, your calling, your vocation, your business, your endeavor is to make sure that among you, among God's people, uh, there is unity. He talks uh, about four different things that are going to serve as the outline for our message this morning. In verse 2, he says, with all lowliness, that's number one, with meekness, with long-suffering, you forbear one another then in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit um, in the bond of peace. You notice the one another in that passage, and it tells us very quickly that we're talking about the people of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And specifically then we talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of our own church family, uh, who are attending here and belong here and who are a part of this. Because, you see, we can't see all of the people of God at any one given time. And we're not going to see all the people of God until we get to heaven. But what we can see is local churches. And that's why God has invented them and God has established them. And this is one of them. And he tells us then that we must work very hard to keep, preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Psalm 133 and verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. I love having business meetings where I can say that at the end. And thank God every business meeting we've had, we have four of them a year if you're interested and curious. Every business, uh, maybe a few special business meetings occasionally, but every one that we've ever had here, I've been able to say that at the end. Uh, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I'm not going to preach Psalm 133 for you today, but I will remind you that the unity of God's people is compared to two things. It's compared to the dew of Hermon, number one. And I want to remind you this morning uh, of the answer to the question, what does dew do? And uh, the big issue about that, you see, is does dew fall or does it rise? You might hear somebody say, well, dew rises from the ground. Somebody else says, no, dew falls from above. Uh, The fact is dew forms. Dew forms when the atmospheric conditions are right. Uh, If you ever notice it doesn't, there's no dew when the wind blows. You ever notice? It has to be still. Temperature conditions, humidity, just right. Do forms. And oh, what a blessing it is to the earth. It's also compared to the, uh, to the oil that ran down on Aaron's beard that anointed his head, that precious anointing oil that God used in the Old Testament. It was a symbol of unity of God's people uh, because you see, uh, this was not uh, a very light smelling perfume. <laughs> that they anointed Aaron. It was a very loud smelling stuff and they put it on his head until it ran all the way down to his feet. Can you imagine how that smelled? I mean, when Aaron walked in the room, everybody knew he was there. Unity of God's people is like that. When you walk into a church, you can tell if they're united. When you walk into a church, you can tell if they're divided. Just an atmosphere. It's precious then when we can see the dew and understand that it is a good and pleasant thing for brethren to dwell together in unity. So understanding that. Let's look at these four things very quickly. We're almost out of time, so I'll move along. First, lowliness. Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Lowliness comes first, and that word is humility. Humility. It is spoken of again in Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Uh, Be of the same mind one toward another. Uh, That is that we don't just give attention to people who are are high people. And and the idea is that people who are high people are noble people. Uh, People who are are well known, who are famous, uh, who have all the advantages, if you will. People who are well off, we might say today. Not just to mind those kind of folks, but also, he said, condescend. And that means pay special attention to those who are of low estate. So we're not just looking for the high-born folks, but also uh, the people of low side. It doesn't matter which side of the tracks they're from. It doesn't matter whether you're dressed this morning in a name-brand suit or, or, or you're dressed in something coming from Walmart. It doesn't matter here. We love you all. We want you all here. 
doesn't matter because in the family of God, uh, we are to have the same mind one toward another. And that speaks of our humility. Why do we have that? Because every person in this building today, if you're saved, was saved because you understood that you were a sinner and you were headed for hell and you deserved it. That's right. If you're saved, you were saved because you realized you were a sinner and you were headed for hell. You were under the condemnation of God. John chapter 3 tells Jesus said, Whosoever believeth on him is not, conde- is, is not condemned, but whosoever believeth not is condemned already. You are under the condemnation of God. The Holy Spirit lets you feel the guilt of that. That may be happening to somebody right here, right now. Yes, I'm a sinner. But I've got good news for you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if you're a sinner, hey, Jesus can help you. Now, if you're not a sinner, sorry, I got nothing for you. (laughs) Hey, just being honest this morning, every person in this building that saved was saved because we all understood we're sinners. We all got a salvation we didn't deserve. Amen. We had a condemnation that we did deserve, but Jesus Christ took that for us when he died for us on the cross at Calvary. And he gives out a simple message. Whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. I wish I could believe for you this morning, but I can't. Uh, I wish my parents or or your parents could have believed for you, but you can't. Everybody has to make that choice, that decision for themselves. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And as long as we all remember that we're sinners saved by the grace of God, that we all deserve to have God's eternal condemnation, but instead we've all received God's eternal salvation. As long as we keep that in mind, then we'll approach one another in lowliness. We'll have a good, healthy self-image of humility. Second thing we need then is meekness. With all lowliness and meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness refers to power under control, strength, if you will, under control. A meek person is not a weak person. A meek person is is a person who has the strength but who exercises self-control. That is, we keep that strength restrained. And we can understand how that operates, especially in our efforts to keep unity. We need a good self-image. That is, we need to remember who we are and what we were, and the fact that everybody who's in here is saved by the same Savior, we need to keep that in mind. But then after we have that in mind, then we also have to practice weakness. Because there'll be times, you know, when we're just uh, attempted to let loose on somebody. And we can let loose on somebody in two ways. Uh, We can let loose on somebody this way. That seldom happens. After about the seventh grade, you start figuring out that that really hurts. And you stop. Most of the time we let loose on people this way. Ah, let them have it. Well, you can. But it doesn't matter whether we let loose on people this way or whether we let loose on people this way. When we let it loose, we say things or do things that can't ever be called back. Doesn't mean the strength is not there when we choose not to let it loose. It means we've practiced meekness or self-control. 
So we need lowliness in this task. We need meekness, that is, self-control. And the next thing that we need is long-suffering. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, he says, forbearing one another in love. Long-suffering <laughs> means that we suffer long. Now, wait a minute, I, I thought we're, we're talking about people that we love. And, uh, well, love suffers long, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and 4, and is still kind. Love suffers long. There might have been that time in your life and mine when, you know, we were in our very, very young adolescent years and we fell in love maybe for the first time and we were convinced that this love was going to be wonderful and it would never hurt at all. But it wasn't that way, was it? When you got married, you might have thought, oh, this is just going to be wonderful, and it will never, ever hurt. But it's not that way. You bring a child into the world, moms and dads, and you think, man, this is such a precious and perfect child. There'll never be any hurt from this. Mm. It's not that way. The fact is that being in relationships causes pain sometimes. It does. The question is, what's it going, what are we going to do and how are we going to react when, when somebody hurts our feelings or when someone does us wrong or when we hear something that somebody said or, or, or we see something that somebody does, uh, how are we going to react to that? And I'll tell you what, in, in a lot of Christianity today, how people react to that is they are poof, they're gone. The first sign of anything that causes any kind of struggle or, or any kind of pain, I'm gone. I'm out of here. But the Bible tells us to suffer long. Long suffering. We'll need it. If we're going to be involved in keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, this is one of the things we're going to need. We need lowliness, that is humility toward ourselves. We need meekness, that is a strong measure of self-control. We need long-suffering, and that is the ability then to keep going and not give up on this relationship even though somebody's hurt me or I've been wrong. And then we get that last word, forbearing. In a way, this last one is the actual action part of this sentence. We approach this then with lowliness, meekness, and long-suffering. We have these things with us. Then what do we do? We forbear one another in love. Forbear one another you know, forbearing is, again, one of those words we don't hear a lot about every day. We don't use it every day. And it's really hard to translate it. The literal word means to hold up, uh, to hold up. And he calls on us then to hold up one another in love. I have never been to uh, the Redwood National Forest, I believe it's called, uh, where the giant sequoias are found. I I've never been there. Some of you may have seen them. Uh, but I can, I can look them up on the internet <laughs> and I can find out a little bit about them. 
some fascinating things about those magnificent trees. Over 300 feet high, 300 feet high, 350 some of them reach to. 350 feet high. One of the great scientific questions about them was how in the world they got water up that high without a pump. What kind of a pump would it take to pump water 350 feet high? Uh, one bigger, how would you like to be on the pump of that one? The Redwoods don't have a pump. Uh, there's actually a system of capillaries, for those of you who want to know, uh, uh, that creates a suction so that the trees actually are able to suck the water out of the ground. It's a fascinating thing. Not that any of you want to know that. I just, I learned it and I had to share it. <laughs> uh, what I wanted to talk about was how they hold each other up. I knew this. You might think that they have a huge root system that goes down, 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 deep, 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 but no, it doesn't. Actually, their roots uh, don't go deeper than about six feet. How do they stand up, you might ask? That's a very good question. Uh, they stand up because their roots spread out over 100 feet from the trunk. And in that forest where there's all those other trees with all their other root systems all spreading out, their roots actually grow together and intertwine. So they're able to stand against the wind because their roots, they forbear one another. It's the best illustration I could find for what this means. Hold one another up because our relationships with each other have us intertwined. And we hold one another up then. We are able to stand when the winds are blowing, when things get difficult and tough. We keep on forbearing one another in love. The giant redwoods may live on water and other nutrients that they draw from the ground, but Christians live on love. The unity that we have in Jesus Christ is a unity, first of all, based on His love for us. We love Him because He, what? First loved us. So it is first that He loved us and also that we love Christ. And because He loved us and we loved Him, then the Bible says, we also love one another. And the great task that we have as believers, specifically as believers in the body, the local church, the body of Christ, is to hold one another up in unity. It's a divided world, folks. And the division in our world is going to get worse. And I'll say it again, just in case any of you missed it. Uh, I don't see any way that this division is going to be settled unless one side somehow enforces its way on the other. I believe in the power of the Word of God. 
And I'm glad to be able to stand in this pulpit today and tell you that I believe that we need a revival like they had in Ephesus so that we could say that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. That's, that's what is needed in this country. Brother Rich, do you really believe that this country would be better off if everybody uh, got saved and if everybody tried to live by the Bible, even though nobody actually does? <laughs> we all fall short. Amen? I say we. Yet we still know what the standard is. The word, do I really believe that this would be a better place if everybody got saved and everybody tried to live by the Bible? Yes, I believe it. I stomp my foot a little when I believe it that much. I believe it would make a mighty difference. It has before, folks. This country's had revivals before. It can have another one. But even if it doesn't, then you and I still need to live out the truth of this passage. No matter how the world is divided, God intends for His church to dwell together in unity. That's our business.